Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast, hosted by me, Zach Elwood. In this episode, recorded November 11th, 2020, I interview Levi Boxel about his work studying political polarization and what social media's impact on that might be. A little bit about Levi. He's a PhD candidate in economics at Stanford University and a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. His fields are political economy and development, with a particular focus on information technologies, polarization, and conflict. His research has been covered by the New York Times and other major media outlets. In 2017, Levi and colleagues put out a paper titled, Greater Internet Use is Not Associated with Faster Growth and Political Polarization Among U.S. Demographic Groups. In their research, they found that, quote, Polarization has increased the most among the demographic groups least likely to use the internet and social media, suggesting that the role of these factors is limited, end quote. In short, they found that older people who use social media less were substantially more polarized than younger people. Levi has also done research examining polarization in other countries and shown that there hasn't been large across-the-board polarization increases in all modern countries which might also make one skeptical about whether social media could be a dominant factor. In this interview, we'll also discuss some interesting work Levi has done analyzing the images of politicians that news outlets decide to use. For example, a conservative news outlet will tend to use images of Trump and other conservatives that have more positive, happy emotions, and use images of liberal politicians that have more negative emotions, and vice versa. So we'll talk about that towards the end, too. Okay, here's the interview with Levi Boxel. Hi, Levi. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. So you've obviously done a lot of research and reading in the area of social media and polarization. So I am curious to know, what are your most up-to-date thoughts on the role of the internet and social media on political animosity and polarization? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think in order to kind of understand my perspective, it's important to keep in mind sort of three stylized or descriptive facts that um, we've tried to document in some of the research we've done with regards to polarization. And, and the first stylized fact that's important to keep in mind is that these polarization measures that um, academics, policymakers typically look at, they've been increasing since the 1980s and increasing at a relatively constant um, rate since that time period. And if social media, internet are driving political polarization, we wouldn't necessarily expect to see this constant upwards trend since the 1980s. We'd maybe expect to see kind of an, an increasing trend with the rise of the internet and social media. But that's not really evident in the data that we have. The second descriptive fact that I think is important to keep in mind is that it's increasing more quickly for older age groups. Now, this doesn't rule out all explanations for social media, but it does constrain the set of narratives that um, people might ascribe to what's driving the polarization trends we observe. And the last descriptive trend that I think is really important to keep in mind is that political polarization has been increasing more quickly in the United States than in other countries. And in some countries, it's actually decreasing over time despite having similar patterns of internet growth and social media growth. So I think these three descriptive facts cause me to question the importance of social media and, and the internet in driving contemporary political polarization in the United States. 
Of course, that doesn't mean there's no role for the internet or social media, just that it has a hard time explaining all three of these facts simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Have there been surprising aspects of your work? Were there moments where you said, wow, I didn't expect that? Yeah, I think, you know, taking a step back and going through how did we come to find these three kind of stylized facts that we've, our our research kind of highlights. And um, the fact that polarization has been increasing since the 80s, that's been known for a while prior to some of the work that we've done on polarization. Um, The first paper that we, we looked at had the intuition that, you know, if internet and social media are the driving factor, we should expect to see people who use it more become more polarized more quickly over time. And so that kind of motivated our first paper where we looked at trends and polarization between older age groups, those 65 and older, as well as younger age groups, such as 18 to 39 year olds in the United States between 1996 up into 2016. And you know, maybe going into it, we expected there to be similar trends. We weren't really sure what we'd find, but we actually found that older age groups polarized more quickly during this time period, which definitely is not what I think most people would have expected going into it. And perhaps the most surprising finding in, the, in a more recent work that we've done is that the U.S. really stands out relative to a lot of these other countries. So we've looked at effective polarization across nine different um, OECD countries for the past 40, 30 years. And the U.S. has exhibited by far the fastest rate of polarization relative to a lot of these other countries. And some countries, particularly Germany, Norway, and Sweden, have seen long-run declines in polarization over this time period. And so I think the fact that we saw these completely different patterns of polarization across these countries was sort of surprising to me. Those were all measuring so-called effective polarization, like the the amount of animosity towards the opposite political group. Is that correct? No matter what country you were measuring? Yeah, Yeah, that's correct. And that's a good point to to bring up. There's a lot of different measures of polarization. Um, Effective polarization, which we've talked just brought up, is the measurement of people's feelings towards the other side. So how warmly or positively do you feel or like the other side? And that's a different concept than ideological polarization, which measures, you know, to what extent do Republicans and Democrats have different policy views on issues such as abortion, government spending, um, health care, those sorts of policy issues. And the evidence is a bit mixed, I think, on in terms of ideological polarization, whereas there's a lot more support for effective polarization increasing in recent years. So I know there's a difference between what you can prove with your work or with what you can demonstrate with your work versus what your own opinion might be. Are you willing to say what your own opinion is of the what are the factors in increased polarization that seems to be happening in a lot of countries? Yeah, I, I think this is I'll, I'll preface my my views by stating one, our, our work on Internet and polarization is certainly not the last word on this subject. And as Internet and social media continue to be more important in in our society, their effects may change over time. And I don't think that the internet and social media have exactly no role to play in explaining trends in political polarization in recent years. What I'd say is that it appears as if their role is likely much smaller relative to the emphasis that has been placed on them. And so I think we need to start looking at potential other drivers as more likely explanations for the trends we've seen. And we try to do this a bit in in 
our paper where we look at trends across different countries by looking at, you know, what's unique about the countries with increasing polarization relative to the countries with decreasing polarization. And one thing that we do observe is that trends in racial compositions of the population are different across these two countries. So countries with increasing polarization are countries that have rising minority racial shares of the population relative to countries with decreasing polarization. And this is consistent with the narrative and history of the United States and the United States sort of being distinctive in its patterns of political polarization. A lot of political polarization really increases after the Civil Rights um, Act and and that era where, where Southern Democrats then switched over to the Republican Party, creating this great Southern realignment which made the two parties more distinct along ideological dimensions. Really, after this time period is when the Republican Party became the Conservative Party and the Democratic Party became the Liberal Party. And before that, you had more of a mix, particularly within the Democratic Party. So it seems like one way to look at these things, whether it's social media or cable TV, you know, cable TV could be having a polarizing effect just by fracturing the viewpoints into so many different niche uh, audiences. And it seems like social media, if it is having effect, could be grouped into that same kind of concept of just splitting the audiences into so many different uh, fractured landscape. Do you see that as being a a factor there too? Because I think I saw that you had mentioned uh, cable TV before. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I think if there's a role for media, and there likely is a role for media in explaining some of these trends, my view is that cable TV does a much better job explaining some of the patterns we see in the data. For one, cable TV really started rising in the 1980s, around the same time when we see a lot of these polarization measures start rising. Older age groups watched cable TV news a lot more than younger age groups. And the cable TV in the environment in the United States is pretty distinct relative to a lot of the Western developed world. So in the United States, you have Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Public spending and support for broadcast media is actually very low in the United States relative to a lot of these other countries. So say in the UK, you got the BBC, and that receives a lot of public funding and support. And a lot of people watch BBC as their primary form of news rather than being split across, say, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN. So this cable news environment, I think, is important to keep in mind. And, you know, you brought up the point of how social media may come into that environment and change things. And I think what's really important to keep in mind is what are the substitution patterns across media outlets? You know, if someone's watching Fox News and then they go just start browsing foxnews.com and then they just start seeing foxnews.com in their Facebook feed, they're not really seeing different information. They're seeing the same type of information. So it's really important to understand to what extent are people really substituting away from, you know, in, in reality, Fox News is moderate on the entire spectrum of its right wing, but it's moderate relative to, you know, some of the outlets you can find online. Are people substituting away from Fox News dramatically into these far right outlets? Or is it predominantly still people just going to foxnews.com? And so I think keeping that in mind is important for thinking about the potential role of social media and the internet going forward. So I'm curious, are there people that believe that the internet and social media are the primary factor? Because even as someone who believes it is a substantial 
contributing factor. Your work doesn't surprise me in the sense that I would see it as a contributing factor and not the main factor. But I'm curious if there are people, respected people in the field who believe it is the main factor. I think if you ask most academics, they would probably not say social media and internet explains everything. That sometimes I think the impression you get if you read news articles about polarization Mm. in social media. Um, And I think a lot of the popular discourse around it, social media and the internet are one of the first things people point to. And I think they've also received a disproportionate amount of academic attention relative to their potential role. Uh, I mean, anytime there's a new technology, it's sort of, it's easy to point to that. Yeah, it's exciting. It's easy to point to that technology. You know, when the telegraph came out, you know, a hundred some years ago, People were pointing to that as going to destroy democracy and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's also, you know, it also gets clicks in the sense that if I, if I'm a Twitter user or if I'm a Facebook user, I'm likely to read something about how these technologies are affecting me, right? So, I think there's there's definitely that motivation on the part of the press. Yeah, yeah, and that and the people who write about it and talk about the role of social media have vastly different media consumption patterns than the average American. Mm-hmm. You know, journalists are on Twitter. Not everyone in America is on Twitter, let alone use Twitter as their primary news source. Most people still just sit on their couch and watch TV. Right. And that that might be a good segue because like you said, yeah, there's a small percentage of people that are very vocal on these platforms that get a lot of attention. And there was some recent work, I can't remember the the author of the paper, but uh, she wrote about how social media content is covered as news, you know, uh, due to, for one factor, uh, lower budgets for journalism and things like that. But these things get covered as news and that could lead into an explanation of if, if your work shows that older people are becoming more polarized, that could be one pathway if social media was a major contributing factor because you know there's plenty of examples of Fox News and other outlets covering the most extreme views of the opposite party as news. And it's easy to see how that could be distorting to older people who may not understand how social media works as well. I'm wondering if you see that as one pathway that that could theoretically explain it. Yeah, that's right. And I think you've really hit an important point that there's really not a lot of work so far, empirical work examining. And that's how does social media impact more traditional media outlets. And and that would be an explanation for some of the patterns we see of Donald Trump's Twitter behavior is getting displayed and driving the news cycle on Fox News or even CNN covering what he's saying on Twitter. That very well could contribute to some of the patterns we see. And I think that may be one of, since most of the news consumption is still on cable TV, if social media is having a really large effect, it's potentially through these general equilibrium channels where it's shaping the media environment more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just as an anecdotal uh, observation, I've spent a good amount of time in in pro-Trump Facebook groups and just the the language and the conversations in there are so extreme and outlandish and mostly from, you know, older people. Uh, And and it makes me think that I, I can see how that pathway would work in the sense that older people may not have the knowledge that younger people do about how social media is distorting uh, fundamentally to, I think, I think younger people have that sense that what you see on social media doesn't represent reality. Whereas older people might see the most extreme viewpoints and think like, oh, the world's going crazy, you know, and, and, and I get that sense, just obviously just my own personal experience, but it's an interesting idea. I, I think it 
it points to there being some room for some more research there about polling older people who do use social media and see how their views have maybe changed over time. But yeah, just a, just an idea. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I think, you know, that rationale or intuition you have supported by some work that has looked at the extent to which different age groups are susceptible to fake news and believing in fake news headlines. And this really comes down to kind of media liter- literacy. And these older age groups do seem more susceptible to fake news headlines relative to the, the younger age groups, which tend to be more skeptical. And so the, again, that, as you mentioned, could be one reason why older age groups are polarizing more quickly. And it's accurate to say that, I think you've mentioned this already, that these things are pretty hard to study because our social media use, our internet use is changing so rapidly and it can be hard to separate the the causes from the effects and just the basic correlations. So is that is that accurate that we're in the beginning of the internet so these things are, are tough to study? Yeah, that's that's accurate. You know, one, it's a new technology and two, you know, the gold standard in science is the randomized controlled trial where you randomize, um, you know, in, in the case of vaccines, given the contemporary discussion, you know, you randomize who gets a vaccine and then you see what happens afterwards and what's the eff- um, effectiveness of the vaccine. And recently, there's been a lot more work along those lines in the social sciences where you try and randomize uh, some treatments, say social media, and observe how those people's behaviors and beliefs change. And there's actually one of my co-authors has a recent paper where he actually, him and his team pays people to quit Facebook for, I think, a month or two months, and then looks at how that impacts their well-being, their beliefs, and their behaviors. And what they find is people who were paid to quit Facebook relative to people who were randomly chosen not to quit Facebook, they have slightly lower levels of political polarization and slightly higher levels of subjective well-being. So so that's, I think, interesting evidence on the role of Facebook. I think one thing that makes it hard to extrapolate from that study to the effect of Facebook more broadly is kind of two things. One, that doesn't account for the general equilibrium effects of how Facebook's impacting, you know, mainstream media when an entire society gets access to Facebook. And the second is it's a very short run effect. So if I had to quit Facebook for one month, would I go out and get a cable TV news subscription? Probably not. If you said I couldn't use Facebook for the rest of my life, would I go out and get a newspaper subscription or get a cable TV subscription? Maybe. And so th- these, again, these media substitution patterns are really important to think about. Right. It seems really hard to get a, a handle on because you know I've been digging into this area recently and you can find some studies showing that social media seems to have a depolarizing effect. I've seen a couple of studies showing that. Uh, so yeah, it just seems like a lot of things these days, uh, it's it's hard to get a handle on what's really going on. Yeah, that's definitely accurate. So I'm curious, uh, with your work studying other countries, you know, we've seen a lot of news about how there's been an increase in polarization across the world and a decrease in democracy and erosion of democracy. Do you have a sense of is that exaggerated in your opinion or is that accurate? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think it's good to kind of distinguish what we do in our work is we look at trends in effective polarization over the past 30, 40 years for the average person in each of the nine countries that we look at. And there we see 
on some, some countries, it's increasing. Some countries, it's decreasing. Kind of on average across these nine countries, it's relatively flat, maybe slightly increasing, if, if I recall correctly. And so on that measure, it doesn't seem like there's a dramatic difference across these past 30, 40 years in levels of effective polarization. I think what a lot of people talk about when they're talking about erosion of democracy or rising polarization in some of these other countries is kind of the rise of these far right, far left parties that are relatively small proportion of the population, but have a kind of outsized influence on the political discussion. And I think there is evidence that there's been a rise in populism globally over the recent years, particularly with a rise of far right parties in recent years, whereas far left parties were maybe more associated with populism going back 20, 30 years. And so I think there is evidence for this rise of populism, which is sort of a fuzzy term that people throw around, but depending how you define it, there's um, evidence for that increasing. Hmm. Are there some countries that you would point to as being surprisingly unpolarized? You know, one country that's kind of most distinctive that we see in our data is Germany. And so we see long run declines in levels of effective polarization in Germany. And a lot of people kind of question that because, you know, recently there's been a rise of the far right, the AFD party in, in Germany. And so a lot of people ask about that when we present the results. We do start to see a bit of a uptick towards the later years in Germany for that party, but overall, it's still a long-run decline. And I think one reason for that is, if we think about Germany's history with reunification, there's a lot of other polarizing factors. If you go back 30, 40 years, the issues that were really polarizing people, particularly in Europe, were, were more along these economic dimensions, whereas today it seems maybe more along the lines of cultural, social issues. What about Australia? Was that one that was relatively unpolarized too? Yeah, so Australia, if I recall correctly, the relative trends were slightly increasing, but not to a significant degree or mostly flat. And I think, you know, when we're talking about whether a country is highly polarized or not, it's important to separate what are the trends in recent years and what are the levels in recent years. So a country can be polarizing really quickly, but started off at a really low level of polarization. And a country could have relatively flat trends in polarization but started off at a really high level of polarization. And we do see some evidence of that in our data. So if you look at the United States, in the, in the early period, in the early 80s, it has relatively lower levels of polarization than some of the other countries that we've looked at. And it's grown quickly and really caught up to a lot of the countries. And now if you look at the levels, the United States is not that distinctive with regards to its level of polarization as we measure it. It is, I think, tricky to interpret the levels across these different countries just because the wording of the question is slightly different across countries and how people, the social norms about expressing dislike towards other people is going to be different across different countries. So, so I think that's important to keep in mind, but there is some evidence that, you know, the U.S. started off at a low level and has been increasing in recent years. So anything else you want to mention about your polarization work? Because I was going to move on to your another interesting study you did about the images. Yeah, I think the last thing I would just say is that 
It's also important to separate the effects of social media, the persuasive effects of social media, and the effects of social media for coordination. So when we talk about the effects of social media on polarization, we're really talking about its persuasive ability. Does social media change people's beliefs about certain issues? Whereas if we think about social media for coordination, this is really more about getting people to change their behavior and make a certain action, go to a protest, go to a rally, go to a riot. And there's a lot more evidence that social media is really good at coordinating protests across the globe. And again, I, th- I think that is a channel for social media driving behavior is perhaps more important than social media driving changes in beliefs. And that's really important when we think about kind of hate crimes or other outcomes that are often associated with polarization, but are really an action that needs to be coordinated. Okay. So you had another interesting study where it was called, or at least the paper was called, Slanted Images Measuring Nonverbal Media Bias. Can you talk a little bit about what you found with that? Yeah. So this was a a study where... Essentially, the idea was, you know, there's a lot of measures of bias in the academic work or media bias that use text-based measures of, of newspaper bias or online news bias. And kind of the idea from the text-based measure is you take a given newspaper, say Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, you scrape the text on the newspaper And then you compare that text to how people in Congress talk. Does that newspaper look like a Republican congressperson talking or a Democratic congressperson talking? And so that gives you a measure of the relative slant of a given newspaper towards the Republicans or towards the Democrats. And the idea behind my paper was to kind of think about, okay, so that measures text. A lot of the media we consume today is visual. We watch news on TV. We there's images associated with news articles. What do the images tell us about the bias or the slant of a given news outlet? And so what I did is I scraped the front pages of roughly 100 online news websites around the 2016 election. And then I used some machine learning tools. A lot of these are APIs from, say, Microsoft or other sources where What these APIs allow you to do is they allow you to detect faces in the images and then assign these faces to a given person based on training data. So I can upload these images to the API and it's going to tell me who this person is based on a a set of images I gave it with that were labeled and also tell me the emotions on these individuals' faces. So I I use this API to detect politician faces, particularly... Which API was it? It was a Microsoft API. They, oh, right. And, and there's a lot of different APIs. Um, right. Azure Emotion that, Detection one. Or something yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah. And so these give you a measure of emotion. And the basic measure I construct is to what extent does an outlet portray a politician with happy emotions relative to more negative emotions such as fear, sadness, anger, disgust, contempt. And the broad finding is that if you look at outlets which have relatively more conservative users, say Fox News or Breitbart, they tend to portray Republican politicians with more positive emotions, more happy emotions relative to their Democratic counterparts. So if you look at compare Fox News's coverage of Donald Trump relative to Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump was portrayed a lot happier than Hillary Clinton was. Yeah, that really resonated with me because I see 
I've thought about that in the past and I see examples of that. You know, I've seen one example that comes to mind is seeing bad pictures of McConnell in, you know, liberal leaning mainstream media. And then there's, you know, plenty of examples on the other side too. There's even been examples of the Trump uh, campaign, you know, uh, editing pictures of, uh, of liberals and Democrats to look much worse than they are in, in real life, you know, so that happens too. Have you thought about setting anything up to measure, uh, attempt to measure the bias of an outlet, a news outlet, just using that technique? Yeah, so I've done a little bit of that work. And, you know, the technique's not perfect. There's still some measurement noise associated with detecting emotions on faces and mapping these two overall for a given outlet. What I do do is for each outlet, I can construct the extent to which it portrays Donald Trump with happier emotions relative to Hillary Clinton. And I can construct that for each outlet. And that gives one measure of relative slant towards Trump compared to Clinton. And overall, if you look, if you look at how that measures correlated with a website's users, whether the website's users tend to be more conservative or more liberal, there's a pretty strong positive correlation with more conservative websites portraying more Republican or Republican candidates with more positive emotions. But if you narrow down to one particular outlet, the measure doesn't always line up with what you might expect. So on average, it works pretty well, but it's not quite precise enough, I think, to get really fine-grained measures at each individual outlet. I'm curious, when you use that Azure emotion recognition software, did you feel it was pretty accurate? Because if I remember correctly, I had played around with it once. You can actually upload example photos and see the the data it spits out. And I, I think it gave like several dimensions of like anger, sadness, et cetera, et cetera, percentage-wise or something for each photo. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that, that's essentially how it works. For each photo, it, it essentially tries to categorize it into these different emotion categories, and it has eight of them. And the, the numbers it spits out are kind of the algorithms, the probability that the algorithm assigns to each of these outcomes. And overall, I think it worked pretty good. It's not perfect. I think it's good at recognizing, say, happiness relative to neutral, relative to some of these negative emotions. Mm-hmm. When I looked at the basic stuff, yeah. yeah. When I looked at some of the image, the negative images, though, I didn't think it was that great at necessarily distinguishing anger from fear, from disgust, from contempt. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are it has a harder time distinguishing. Right. It makes sense that it would be, yeah, it would probably be best at the most basic, obvious kind of yeah, thing, smiling is, or frowning or whatever. Yeah, essentially. People may be interested in that. When I played around with that Azure um, face recognition and emotion recognition software, I actually uploaded some pictures of some lesser known poker players just to see how it would do <laughs> because it's it has a thing where it recognizes, you know, celebrities, so-called celebrities. And I was pretty surprised it recognized some players I was... I, I was surprised that it recognized basically, but it makes sense because it's it's basically scrubbing all the common images from the internet or however it's working. Yeah, I wonder when the these computer vision algorithms are going to be able to start doing poker tells for you. I actually was was digging into that because I felt like yeah, getting off topic, but I actually put <laughs> together a, a brief uh, like a scoping of of how such a program would work using you know these technologies and you could you could basically uh at least a like aid it wouldn't necessarily do it for you but Mm -hmm. it would aid someone trying to study tells and behavior and and poker footage but yeah that's a that's a whole nother uh topic (laughs) there Uh, um any other interesting uh 
things that you think the audience would be interested in in regards to uh, polarization or nonverbal aspects that you've studied? Yeah, I guess some of our most recent works looked at the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, one of our papers uh, looks at the extent to which there are partisan differences in social distancing behaviors, which, of course, is a hot topic. And there's a lot of you know, polls or surveys or news articles saying Republicans and Democrats are responding to the pandemic in completely different ways. What we did is we worked with a company called SafeGraph, which has GPS data on um, aggregate GPS data that's anonymized uh, on mobility patterns across different locations. So we can look at the extent to which Republican counties, how their mobility patterns change relative to more Democratic counties. And you know, if you just look at do that split, there are, are large differences across these two counties. But there's a lot of reasons for why Republicans might respond differently for good for good reason. So, you know, Republicans live in more rural areas, which had a at the beginning of the pandemic, at least lower levels of virus prevalence. They also may have different economic incentives or different preferences where they may be less risk averse or more risk averse than their Democratic counterparty. So what we really wanted to do was try and get the extent to which these differences are driven by differences in beliefs. And that's really when these different patterns become socially inefficient. If I think the virus is really bad and you don't, and you go out and socialize, whereas you would have had the same behavior as me if you had the same beliefs as me, that's going to lead to inefficient outcomes for society. And so when you control for a bunch of these different factors, it does reduce the partisan gap pretty significantly. So the difference in social distancing behavior, a lot of it can be explained by these different incentives, these different preferences, but there's still an important gap that remains. And when, we, and when you go to the survey and you look at the survey evidence, there is an important difference in beliefs um, where Republicans predicted fewer future cases of the coronavirus in the United States relative to their Democratic counterparts or believed that social distancing was less effective than their Democratic counterparts. And so really these differences in beliefs are important. And that's really, you know, fundamental to this discussion of polarization is why do people have these different beliefs? Yeah, I guess it's a it's a good example too, because the perception of polarization is much greater than the actual polarization, because I think the the surveys showed that most conservatives were on board with social distancing and, and wearing masks, but the perception still is that, you know, there's a large percentage of Republicans that are not. But I think, would you agree with that, that it's the, the perception is much greater than the, the actuality? Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of different measures of polarization is, or just the other party in general. We have a very skewed view of what the other side looks like. So there's one paper that uh, I think it's called the parties in our heads, where it looks at what are people's beliefs about the other party? So if you if you ask someone what proportion of Republicans make over two hundred fifty thousand a year, it's like they say something like twenty thirty percent, which is way out of proportion with reality. Where it's like two or three percent. There's just not that many people in society that make that much money, um, unless you're working at Google. And, and so once you correct for these misperceptions, it does tend to alleviate some measures of. of I, I believe they looked at effective polarization, and so these skewed beliefs are really important for thinking about skewed beliefs of the other side, I think are important for thinking about kind of drivers of effective polarization. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of a, it's kind of funny how both sides will use completely opposite stereotypes of the opposite group, depending on what 
what they want to emphasize. You know, for example, liberals might call conservatives rich elite billionaires, millionaires, or they might call them poor rednecks and conservative conservatives might call liberals, you know, jobless, uh, lazy bums or rich elites, you know, just depending on whatever is, is serving the, uh, the narrative at that point in time. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, you know, a lot of work in social science, political science has focused on, you know, how do we construct these in groups and out groups and, you know, Liliana Mason, she's a scholar who's done a lot of work on this. And she really argues that, the more we align a given political party with a bunch of other social identities, say your race, your ideology, your religion, um, your income level, your class, that really creates larger perceived group differences between Republicans and Democrats and, and may be an important driver of um, effective polarization. If, if people on both sides are, share some common traits, that can be a bridge. But when they're you know, from completely different groups and they're, um, mm. you know, they're split mm-hmm. across these dimensions, that becomes harder to do. Mm-hmm. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks so much for the talk, Levi. And is there anything else you'd like to add about how people can get in touch with you or other work you're working on now? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I mean, if people have comments, they can look me up and find my email and feel free to reach out. Yeah. I appreciate this conversation. And these are, I think, important conversations to be having. So. Thanks. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. If you want to learn more about potential impacts of social media on political polarization, I recommend a piece I recently wrote titled How Social Media Divides Us. It's on my Medium account. If you'd rather listen to it, I recorded a version of that for the podcast recently. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. You can find me on Twitter at apokerplayer, and you can find podcast episode summaries at readingpokertells.video. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies.